Support for this podcast comes from Bryn Mawr Communications. BMC produces a number of informative podcast series spanning a variety of topics in optometry. Discover a new show at itube.net slash podcasts. Welcome to this episode of Modern Management of Vitreous Opacities. My name is Walt Whitley. I'm an optometrist with Virginia Eye Consultants, and I'm joined today by my three esteemed panelists, Dr. Allison Early, Dr. Christina Wang, and Dr. John Kitchens. It's great to have you all here. Uh, Allison uh, practices at Cincinnati Eye. Uh, thanks for being here today, Allison. Hey, Walt. Thanks so much for having me. We also have Dr. Christina Wang from Baylor College of Medicine, who's a visual retinal specialist. Thanks for having us. And last but not least, we have John Kitchens, Retina Associates, Kentucky. Great to be with you again there, John. Well, great to see you again. Thanks for having me. Before we get into the program, let's preview this three-part mini-series. Collaboration between optometrists and surgeons will be key to assisting some patients who are experiencing vitreous opacities. We have the full gamut of eye care represented here on this panel with me as the optometrist. We have Allison with a comprehensive ophthalmology, as well as our two vitreal retinal specialists. Today, my role is going to be the moderator, but we are going to rotate this with John doing the previous episode, and Allison's going to moderate the last. In our first episode that you all listened to, we explored the value of patient history and the possibility of creating a standardized patient questionnaire that could be used on a referral from optometrist to a surgeon. In our next episode, we'll hear a bit about how surgical innovations have made surgical solutions for vitreous opacity safer and more effective. On this episode, we'll have a discussion on the specifics of the examination and the referral. So as we get started here, I just wanna ask you all several questions because what our focus is right now is gonna be on the examination. And Allison, I'm gonna start with you because I know your practice very well at Cincinnati Eye. Uh, I know you do see a lot of acute patients that come in and complain about vitreous opacities. Can you tell us a little bit about what you look for during this examination? Absolutely. I think that's a really great place to start because one of the most common acute complaints that brings a new patient through the door is having a new onset of floaters. And that's a great place to start with our conversation today because it's something that will affect almost everybody eventually. So not all vitreous opacities are created equal, but it's important to figure out first, of course, what's causing your patient to have these vitreous opacities. Sometimes quality is not the same as quantity. Sometimes people may have quite impressive vitreous opacities on examination, but not be terribly bothered by them. And the opposite can be true as well. There's also conditions like asteroid hyalosis that might be very impressive on examination, but very innocuous and almost asymptomatic in most cases. And then there are other things like a vitreous hemorrhage, which is sometimes transient in nature and may resolve on its own. So in addition to our first thing that we think of often is the floaters and posterior vitreous detachment that we see walk through the doors so commonly, it's important to remember that there are many other things that can cause vitreous opacities as well. Yeah, and it's always important for us to, to differentiate all those. I guess a question I have for you or, or anyone here. So, you know, I have residents and students that know you all work with them as well. So if a patient comes in complaining about vitreous opacities, recent onset in one eye, 
do you dilate just that one eye or do you always dilate both eyes in those cases? Allison, I'll, I'll start with you. So that's a really good question and definitely any trainees should tune in here. You always want to examine both eyes because you never know what might be lurking in the contralateral eye, whether it's symptomatic or not. So always, always, always dilate and fully examine scleral depressed. Do your due diligence to really get a good exam of both eyes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you just mentioned scleral depression and that. That's one of the things that, that we do within our practice. We make sure that all of our students and residents understand that, but we also have workshops with our referring doctors and bring them in and they're working with you know, the Johns and, and the Christinas where they're showing them the proper techniques on how to do that better evaluation. And that way, whenever there is a tear or whatever's going on, then we can make that appropriate referral to the patient. You know, for me, I do exactly the same as you do within, at, within that differentiation, uh, especially with the uh, dil dilating uh, both eyes. Uh, but it's always great because anytime there's uh, any questions that I have, I always have my, my, my phone friends or my neighbors upstairs that I can just send, uh, send them to. But uh, having those relationships with, the, with your retina specialist is always going to be key. Uh, Christina, for you, which elements does, do you think are important to weigh properly whenever it comes to patients with vitreous opacities or in regards to the examination itself? Is there some yeah. things that are more important than others? Yeah, honestly, Walt, uh, I generally just will rely on a careful slit lamp and dilated fundoscopic examination. There are uh, colleagues of mine who like to use OCT. You can sometimes look at the vitreous and see what kind of hyperreflectivities you can see there above the retina. Some people even use uh, B-scan ultrasonography or scanning laser ophthalmoscopy as well. All of these things can highlight some of those opacities, but I find that a good slit lamp examination, especially focusing on the anterior hyloid, as well as, of course, performing a thorough dilated fundoscopic examination is generally pretty helpful and gives me an idea. Now, I really wanna echo what Allison really astutely said earlier, which is that unfortunately, there's not always a tight correlation between what you see on exam or imaging for that matter, and how the patients are actually feeling. So I'm gonna give you a tricky response to your question. I think it really comes down to history still. History is weighed more for me in this type of condition than in other conditions where you're using ancillary imaging and examination to help confirm what you believe is happening. In this situation, I'm actually looking for signs on examination to help um, kind of confirm what I feel that the patient is experiencing or telling me they're experiencing. But just like Allison said, you may have patients where you don't see too much on examination and they are really, really bothered and vice versa as well. And just to take that one step further, you know, the other thing that I'm looking closely at when I do these, the, the ancillary testing and the dilated fundoscopic exam, I'm actually looking for other pathologies, probably more carefully. I'm looking for other causes to explain the symptoms that they might be, you know, confounding in, in, in what they're experiencing, such as an epiretinal membrane, for example, or a cataract. I'm also looking to see their PVD status, their phacic status to help gauge the risk benefit assessment for potentially taking them for a vitrectomy for the vitreous opacities. And I'm also looking for things like signs of high myopia or lattice degeneration, all of these things also alter the risk profile for any particular patient. Hey, John, I have a question for you because Christina just started talking, she started mentioning the various uh, technologies and imaging platforms. And one of the things we're seeing more and more, and I've seen the adoption within retina, is going to be that wide field imaging and, you know, the, doing that non-dilated image of the back of the eye. What are your thoughts on that in regards to that itself 
as a retinal exam, but then also in regards to vitreous opacities. Yeah, well, so first of all, if a patient comes in with a new onset posterior vitreous detachment, which is different than what we're really talking about with vitreous opacities that we're considering for surgery, mm -hmm. there's no substitute for a dilated depressed examination. So I know the tendency is, gosh, let's just, you know, let's do this ultra wide field image and rule out a tear. But I can tell you, you're only going to catch about half of all tears with ultra wide field and not doing a dilated depressed examination. So acute posterior vitreous separation, absolutely dilate the patient. You can go ahead and get an ultra wide field image to help you kind of do that general purview of the retina, but then be sure that you are depressing in all four quadrants looking for breaks. That being said, in the patient who has symptomatic vitreous opacities, I think there's a cadre of imaging that can help us, but just don't rely on it all the time to be able to see what's going on. That history is so, so important. I think ultra wide field is great. It's great for looking for the pathologies that Christina mentioned, lattice degeneration, you know, to document whether or not there's any glaucoma or any other pathology that you're worried about. Uh, I think the OCT is absolutely critical. And I think there's two points on the OCT. First point is, is look at your reference image. You know, there's a little gray box that shows the macula in black and white. Uh, or in grayscale, that sometimes will show vitreous opacities better than anything. So be sure and look at that. And sometimes you'll see little, you know, areas that look like shadows there. And then look at the macular OCT and look at it particularly for two things. We're looking for epiretinal membranes or any kind of macular pathology that may make you think twice. But then also look to see if the vitreous is still attached there because the vitreous is still attached to the macula, or if there's vitreous just overlying the macula, but it's attached to the nerve, you gotta start questioning, is this patient really having bothersome vitreous opacities? Because I've found that patients that still have vitreous that's attached to the optic nerve are much, much less likely to be symptomatic from vitreous opacities. So definitely use those. Ed Ryan also has talked about using uh, the scanning laser ophthalmoscope on the Heidelberg camera in a movie mode to be able to visualize these vitreous opacities. And we've done that in a handful of cases and it does show the vitreous opacities. So you actually video the patient's eye movement and you can see these opacities just whipping past the, 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 uh, the fundus in the back of the eye. Very, very helpful. And you show it to the patient and they go, that's what I see. Um, and so it can be very remarkable, but not everybody has that imaging technology. Mm -hmm. So once again, it's good to use, but sometimes you're not going to see the bothersome vitreous opacities on those imaging modalities. Okay. And so before we take a break here, Christina, I'm going to turn this back over to you. So the patient has vitreous opacities. We use whatever modality that John just mentioned. Do you want to see that photo or what's good enough for you in that documentation? Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, at the very least, your interpretation of the images, but I always like to get all the images if possible to come with the patient. And it really helps me um, avoid rescanning. Um, although sometimes we still will have to, especially since a lot of the testing here, um, you, you've got to do it dynamically, like SLO, for example, you really want that patient moving around, B-scan, ultrasonography, same thing. It's really helpful to sort of see what's actually moving. So, um, but yeah, definitely a carefully documented history in your examination, as well as any of the pertinent images that would help support why you're referring. If you're referring to a retina specialist, um, we assume that you and the patient both think that surgery is definitely something that could potentially benefit that patient. So we like to be equipped with all that information beforehand if possible. 
Perfect. Well, thanks there, Christine. And thanks to the rest of the team. We're going to pause here for a, a brief, uh, brief break, and there's going to be more on this conversation on the other side. Support for this podcast comes from Bryn Mawr Communications. BMC produces a number of informative podcast series spanning a variety of topics in optometry. Discover a new show at itube.net slash podcasts. Welcome back to the mini-series, Modern Management of Vitreous Opacities. I'm your host for this episode, Walt Whitley. Let's continue our discussion on the examination and referral of patients with vitreous opacities. And so to start this section off here, Allison, I want to turn it back over to you. And so you have a patient that comes in for vitreous opacities. Um, you can pick how long they've had it. Uh, but how long do you wait before you refer that patient with vitreous opacities to, to a retina specialist? You know, I think it depends a bit on exactly what the patient tells me. As we've talked about, there's a, a long time span sometimes that patients may tolerate these symptoms. Um, other patients may come in at acute onset, and you have to find that sweet spot where they've gone past the window of neuroadaptation. So when I see somebody with an acute PVD, I always counsel them that most likely over time they will neuroadapt and their floaters will become much less noticeable. They may still see them in certain lighting conditions or certain situations, looking at the clear blue sky or their bright computer screen or something like that. But over time, they do typically become less noticeable, but it's not an absolute. So I usually want patients to get through maybe the first three to six months of symptoms before I would consider a referral for a floater um, surgery or vitrectomy in somebody with, a, with an acute PVD. That interval might be slightly shorter if it's a patient who has recently had cataract surgery and suddenly their floaters are much more dramatic to them now that their visual acuity and contrast has improved. Uh, I may consider a shorter interval for that type of referral. And even as a subset of that, if a patient has a premium intraocular lens and they're dealing with multifocal vision, it could be that their floaters are even more noticeable to them than somebody with a monofocal lens. So as with everything, it has to be tailored to the individual. And we talked about cataract surgery last time and postoperatively. So, so if we had to say how many months, when would you refer that patient with the vitreous opacities that developed after cataract surgery, no matter the lens? Do you have a time you know, I, I think for most situations dealing with vision after cataract surgery, I would be more conservative. And I, I oftentimes think that observation is the first course of treatment that I would choose. And to, again, see if a patient neuroadapts to their new visual input you want to make sure that both eyes are seeing as well as they can and there are no other situations occurring like cystoid macular edema or post-op inflammation or things like this that could also be degrading their vision. Another thing that I think is extremely common and it's one of those things that you either see it all the time or you miss it all the time is dry eye. And I'm sure you know that well, Walt. So patients who have cataract surgery are more likely to have dry eye flare-ups in that first few months following surgery. So I think it's really important to 
make sure you, that you've reestablished the new baseline before you entertain the idea of secondary procedures. Yeah, and I'm very similar to you uh, in how I approach uh, patients with the vitreous uh, opacities. You know, oftentimes it just depends on going back to the history as we talked about earlier is, you know, how long has this been bothering them? Have we given them the time to, to neuroadapt? Uh, I mean, but if there's a patient that says, oh, I've had it for months or years and it's bothering today and it's just for some reason bothering more than usual, then, you know, I, I'll say I'll get them in with, you know, a, a one of the retina specialists uh, sooner or the next available, but it's not an emergency. I let the patient know. We'll try to get, uh, get you in just to address the quality of life. And so, John, if, are there certain unique circumstances that may require a more prompt referral for patients with vitreous opacities? You know, Walt, I'll tell you, um, occupationally, sometimes there are people who have occupational um, uh, jobs that require excellent visual acuity. So if the person, let's say, is a professional photographer, you may want to refer that patient a little bit, a little bit sooner. Um, I've seen a couple of professional athletes. I didn't operate on them, but they were bothered by their vitreous opacities and came in for an evaluation. The problem with that situation is, is they're oftentimes younger and you're going to give them a cataract. I think one of the key things to do, though, is if you're seeing a patient with vitreous opacities, be sure to review the symptoms of a retinal detachment with that patient before you send them out. Um, and you, you want to just say, hey, look, I just want to make you aware. I know these floaters are bothering you, even if it's an acute PVD or something that's more chronic. If you see a shadow or a curtain coming up or down over your vision, or if you start to see tons of new floaters, you want to give us a call right away. So I think that can't be missed. And, and anybody who has then an abrupt change in their visual symptoms, anything beyond what they're normally used to, take a look at them. And if they have anything going on, send them over. But we don't want to miss the retinal detachment. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, beyond those two things, really patient aggravation. We're pretty amenable to getting patients in within three or four weeks for an evaluation for vitreous opacities. We're not that far booked out. So the bottom line is, is a three or four week wait for an evaluation is not that bad. So, you know, what do ODs need to do during the initial examination to ensure that the patient, if referred, will receive prompt treatment that will help alleviate their symptoms? And I'll, I'm going to turn that one over to you, Christina. So, you know, what, what do we need to do to help patients get prompt treatment if needed? So I think what helps Walt, honestly, is just making sure that all the communication loops are closed. And, you know, any time that I need help from my fellow optometry colleagues, for a patient after they've had their scleral buckle, for example, for retinal detachment, if they need it in a certain amount of time or a closer time window than, than I know you'll be able to typically accommodate, I'll just go out and reach out to that, that person and say, hey, I've got this special case here. Um, would you mind taking a look at this patient? And here's the backstory on that person. I think that helps so much. Um, and, you know, honestly, even after the referral happens, I think closing the communication loop again from our end is also really important in helping to sort of smooth out this process of getting the patients in to the retina specialists that need to come in for these vitreous opacities. I don't think we as retina specialists need to see every single person with a vitreous opacity, but we do want to see those who likely can be helped by something like a vitrectomy, for example. And so I always try to make it a point when I receive referrals from my optometry colleagues, my comprehensive or general op ophthalmologist colleagues, I always try to reach out back to them and let them know what we decided together. And I think that also helps um, them learn what is a patient that should be referred? When, when is that threshold reached? I think we all learn from that experience. And similarly, 
when we receive a referral to hear that story directly from you, either through your notes or through a text or a phone call. I think it also helps us really understand how long you've been following that patient, what the severity really is from your eyes. You often know the patient much better than we will from a single visit, obviously, even if it's very detailed. And so again, just making sure that all communication channels are open, I think is really critical. Yeah. And you know, when we're talking about the referral, one of the things that, that we often do and, you know, as our referral doctors do as well is, you know, I'm saying, hey, if it's cataracts, I tell them, hey, I'm going to refer you to, to Dr. Early. She's a cataract surgeon I work with. You know, she has this much experience. And so she's going to take care of your procedure. And then I'm going to see you uh, after after the procedure and so if it's for retina I say the same thing hey I'm going to send you to Dr. Wang I'm going to send you to Dr. Kitchens for these vitreous opacities they're going to address that but then I'm going to see you after the procedure so can Christina can you talk about so what do you tell the patients they've had the surgery when can the referring doctor when do they when are they going to see that patient back and when is your episode of care done is it after that 90 post-op 90 days after the vitrectomy or what, what does that look like or sound like yeah it can vary from patient to patient i would say well for the typical patient i always make sure i see them throughout that that 90 day post-operative period um, that is, you know, I, I take full ownership of any surgery that I do, and I want to make sure that the patient isn't experiencing any sort of complications. Those don't always happen right away, especially after vitrectomy surgery. So I really want to make sure that I'm in close contact with that patient in case they develop a retinal tear down the line or something else like that, or an epiretinal membrane, for example. And uh, the other point to, to what you mentioned is I also always make sure that that patient ends up back to the referring provider. I think that's really important for continuity. I think the patients appreciate that, that it helps to connect the circle. And of course, it helps to um, promote really uh, strong relationships and partnerships within the community. So Allison, so when you have a patient in, in that, that has a vitreous opacities, how are you talking to that patient or what are the, some of the key elements that are you saying when you refer to that retina specialist that's within your practice at Cincinnati Eye? Yeah, I'm really fortunate to work with some really excellent retina surgeons. So I think we've covered a lot of great things already. I do always make sure to mention to my patients anytime that I'm discussing the idea of surgery that there is some risk involved. Although we've come a very long way in surgery and our procedures are extremely safe with very low complication rates, there is always some risk involved. So I want patients to know that, that that needs to be taken into consideration too when they're deciding whether or not to pursue surgery. But ultimately I feel that it's really important for me to allow the retina specialist to make the surgical plan. So I never promise a patient that they will have surgery or that they absolutely need a surgery for this, that I don't perform the surgery. I feel that way in my own practice when I um, deal with patients who are referred from other providers. You know, as the surgeon, it's really up to you to, de to develop that surgical plan between you and the patient. So although I certainly discuss the possibility of surgery, I, I specifically avoid promising a treatment course if I'm not the person who's going to be providing it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I appreciate all your insights here. And for all of our listeners, as you can see, this all comes down to the communication aspect of it. And yes, I know our focus right now was more on the examination, the referral itself, but it's going to be communicating with, with the patient, but then also communicating between all of us, uh, the, the providers of their care. That's it for this episode of Modern Management of Vitreous Opacities. 
Join us for our next episode in which Allison Early will be moderating on surgical innovations that make surgery for vitreous opacities a reality. And be sure to go back in your podcast feed to listen to our conversation about patient history. On behalf of the panel, I'm Walt Whitley. Join us here next time.